Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with the creators, producers, and director of Trust Me, I'm Sick, which is a documentary series about chronic illness that was made in partnership with Suffering the Silence. We also are lucky to have one of the subjects of the doc here with us today. So we've got Erica Lupinacci, Sarah Stewart, and Henrietta Ivanen McIntyre. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on today. So many of us in the community have been absolutely touched by the work that you're doing, and we're just thrilled to speak to all of you. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. So that's Sarah. If you guys hear Sarah's voice, she is the director of the film and brought the idea to Suffering the Silence for partnership. Um, and uh, Erica is the one of the co-founders of Suffering the Silence, as well as the, one of the co-creators of the doc and producer. And then Henrietta is uh, the subject, one of the subjects of the film. So you guys, this is such a pleasure. I'm so thrilled to have you all on. So I we talked about quite a few questions I have for everyone as we go into this, and we're going to respond here and there. Everyone's going to give a little snippet of their story so that you guys can all work together in creating this additional platform story for us today. So why don't we start at the beginning? Who wants to tell us how and when you first realized you were sick and what you've done to control your health since? I'll go first. All right, Sarah, go for it. Sure. So um, I, I got sick Back in 2015, I was 20, I was living in London, and I just graduated college. And it's kind of that classic chronic illness story where I went from this insanely healthy 20-year-old to pretty much overnight um, not being a healthy 20-year-old. And through our conversations, through the series that we've made, and in general through my journey over the last few years, um, I realized how kind of common my experience was. You go from really knowing nothing. I don't know what the definition of chronic pain was. I had no idea what chronic meant, honestly, um, despite graduating college. And very quickly, I found myself thrust into doctor's offices and hospital appointments. And um, looking back at that kind of very early period, it was, uh, it's kind of just a bluff of a lot of kind of fear and scariness. Um, I remember that I was told by my doctor at the time, every Friday, next Friday, when I see you, we'll know what this is. We'll be able to take care of it. I got my diagnosis um, last summer, so that's five years later. Which is, that's on the average, that's probably about the average it takes for most women in particular to get diagnosed with an invisible chronic illness, if not longer. Yeah, I I mean, I count myself lucky for having a diagnosis, frankly. Mm. Um, I don't know how many Fridays that is since I first spoke to my doctor, but it's a few. Yes. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, it was kind of uh, looking back on it. It's been a, a pretty wild five years. And my diagnosis is SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, which basically means that my small intestine doesn't play nicely. And um, I'm lucky that my symptoms now are much more in control than they were. So I'm That's amazing. So have you gone through a, a process of eliminating the bacteria from your intestinal tract and sort of reintroducing more nourishing minerals and vitamins and things? Yep. So I've had the joys of doing FODMAPs, which a lot mm-hmm. of people I'm sure know and love. Um, I uh, Part of the reason it took so long to diagnose is SIBO is still pretty rare to be diagnosed. They don't know that much about it. Um, in contrast to Crohn's or other conditions. So for a long time, they actually thought I had Crohn's. Um, but basically for me, I did every test under the sun. I saw these amazing doctors in Harley Street in London. I was very lucky with that. Um, and still no one, I just wasn't fitting in with any of the, the things. So yeah, I've done a ton of work on diet. Um, I actually did a clinical trial at Cedar sinai Hospital here in LA last year. Um, and my symptoms got worse. So they concluded that I probably had the placebo but I'm happy that I still did the trial. Um, But yeah, it's definitely been a long road to get to where I am. And I'm lucky because having essentially fled for over six months straight and I was in a position where I couldn't work, I'm now able to work and um, have found ways to kind of live my life uh, in a way that's less painful than it was. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was wondering if we could just quickly uh, get Erica to chime in on this one too. Can you tell us what you live with Erica and how you've gotten that under control and how it's been involved in the foundation of Suffering the Silence and how you got involved in the film with Sarah? Sure. Um, So I was diagnosed with lupus when I was 18, um, which is a little over 10 years ago. Um, It took me three years to get the proper diagnosis. Um, I was misdiagnosed with, uh, ankylosing spondylitis at one point, about halfway through my diagnostic journey. Um, but even just as a kid, I kind of always felt like I was sick or something was off. Like I, I was always sick more than other kids and missed a little bit more school than other, um, people did. So I definitely kind of always felt like something was off, um, but I didn't start experiencing symptoms or anything that really worried me and my parents till I was 15. Um, so it took me getting like very, very ill um, with uh, fluid around my heart and lungs and inflammation of both of those things um, and not being able to breathe and all of that and being hospitalized for a week until they finally were able to diagnose me with lupus. So that was that. Um, and then I think the first few years I rode the high of finally having a diagnosis that felt right and felt like, um, I was being treated properly and I knew what was going on. And thankfully, I don't know how, but I was like eight, I got diagnosed right at the end of my senior year of high school. And I was able to go to college, you know, the end of that summer and graduate college in four years, which I feel very fortunate that I was able to do. But after school, I had a like, okay, few years. Um, And then actually, when I moved to LA about four years ago, I, I've pretty much been in a flare (laughs) since then. Um, My, the way that my lupus flares is um, inflammation of the um, uh, pericardium surrounding the heart, uh, pericarditis. And that's what eventually 
put me in the hospital when I got diagnosed. And that's just kind of usually how I flare. Um, and I've, that's become chronic now. So we've just been kind of trying a lot of different medications and dosages and all of that to figure out how to make me a more normally functioning human. So we'll see. It's been a little bit better the past few months. Um, so that's good. Um, Very but, good to hear. We're glad to hear yes. you're feeling a little better right now, Thank especially you. in the midst of this COVID pandemic. Yes. yes. Good times. Um, but the founding of Suffering the Silence kind of happened um, right after I graduated college. Allie, my co-founder, and I, we went to middle school and high school together, and we were best the best like teenage uh, obsessed with each other talked about everything um we're so so close but we were both chronically ill and never really talked about it with each other and after we graduated college Allie had gotten a book deal to write about her experience with Lyme disease and I had had some like PR experience and was helping her a little bit with social media and all of that and as we started talking about it we realized that though we had different diagnoses, our emotional experience was very similar. And if we were, you know, the best of friends and didn't talk about it, there are probably other people that weren't talking about it and wanted to kind of form this community where people could talk about it and not feel like they have to sugarcoat their experience, that they could just speak openly, honestly about what it really means to be chronically ill. Um, and it's been almost five years now since we started it and it started kind of just as an online community and we turned it into a nonprofit a few years after that. Um, and Sarah approached us like what over two and a half years, almost probably three now at this point. Um, and that was so exciting to me because we've, you know, explored a lot of different photography projects and things just kind of online and a lot of different art forms, but um, film is a personal interest of mine and a career goal and um, having the opportunity to create this documentary series was really a dream for me and was a natural next step for us as an organization. So it's been Mm. exciting. Very exciting. And Henrietta, can I pivot over to you? Um, I know that you're living with multiple diagnoses and you've even written a book about it yourself. So can you tell us a bit about your experience too? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you so much for this. Um, well, let me just start by saying I'm 51 and this all started when I was 13. So I'll try to keep it short. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, when I was 13, Um, I had a series of really, really high fevers over the course of a year and a half. And initially they thought, um, at the time I was living in Toronto, Canada, and they thought that I had an acute kidney infection and it ended up being after multiple hospital stays, um, chronic kidney disease, more specifically glomerulonephritis, which is inflammation of the filters that surround the kidneys. And, And the pathology that came back was a very unique type of scarring where I had three different types of scarring happening at the same time. So they never knew how I got it. Um, It was through a virus. I never had mononucleosis. I never had strep throat. I never had lupus. I never had any kind of autoimmune disorder. So uh, eventually I would lose the function of my kidneys and I would have to have my first kidney transplant when I was 19. And my mother was a match to give me a kidney, which was mind-blowing and extraordinary. You have to remember this was like in the 80s, in the late 80s. And so all of these immunosuppressants 
were still really, really new. Um, and probably a lot more damaging to the system then. Yeah. yeah. In, in fact, one of the medications I take is cyclosporin because I can't actually tolerate one of the newer drugs, tacrolimus or Prograf. So wow. that's interesting in of itself. Um, and this, this transplant lasted me a good, uh, I would say 21 and a half years. I was really, really fortunate. Um, and then around that time, I went into chronic kidney transplant rejection. And at that time, I ended up becoming, and I, to, now, now I believe I was always an alcoholic, and I believe I was born that way. But I turned to drugs and alcohol to cope with that. Um, and that's a whole other part of, of my spiritual and mental and physical healing. But um, is, is in and of itself also an invisible chronic condition. Absolutely. 100%. I a hundred percent believe that it's actually listed in the American medical association as a physical and psychiatric disease. And because it, it has symptoms and it's progressive and it responds to treatment. Um, and then, uh, in 2011, my husband who I've almost been, it's almost been 25 years now that we've been married. Um, he was a match and it was, I just want to say for everyone who's tuning in right now, as Henrietta is saying that her husband is a mat, was a match, Erica and Sarah, who know this story well, are here on Zoom with us clapping. And it's just amazing because what luck to not only have your mother be a match, but then your husband. So you've never had to be on a, a waiting list for an organ. I, you know, I follow so many, so many, um, younger people actually that need um, a kidney and I am, and they've been on dialysis for years. I've only had two short stints on dialysis. I'm extraordinarily fortunate. It is no way to live. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'm, you know, it's poetic, it's serendipity. It's all of those things. I mean, he really is on so many levels, my soulmate. Um, and so, you know, I'm, so I'm in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. I've had two kidney transplants as a result of being on these immunosuppressants for so many years now, I guess it's like 37 years or something. A few years ago, I developed a kind of what we think is a combination of a neuropathy and some kind of damage to my nerves as a result was, of being on medications. And, and this was likely caused by some kind of virus in terms of root cause? No, this, the root cause was never determined. Unfortunately, this was about five years ago. It was actually a rash that I got. And uh. it, I think it was some kind of fungal infection. Nobody really nailed it down. Years of doctors, years of Eastern, Western medicine, um, like three different series of dermatological investigations at UCLA and Cedars and USC. And as a result, there's some kind of damage to my nerves. And so I'm in a constant state of like an electrical current going through my body. It vacillates and I've definitely discovered that diet can help that. But, um, and then I also live with chronic migraines, which, so yeah, this is, yeah, it's just, um, yeah. And when you say this, this electrical current moving through your body, it's, it's chronic pain. Um, just so yeah. that we're clear with everyone who's tuning in that like, this is like, it's not just like a fun electrical current. This is no. something that's causing a burning <laughs> sensation in your limbs pretty much yeah. all the time. Um, it's pretty much like uh, the, the heat of it and the burning of it is less now, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like in combination with a kind of tinnitus, it's, it's some kind of neurological damage that it's constant. Wow. And this is also something, it's very interesting because you're now straddling the lines of living with diagnosis and living outside of it. So you've got that sort of dual existence, but in the meantime, you've been able to heal 
from addiction and, and get into remission and um, sort of peel the layers back on your own work, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I, in fact, I kind of divide my, my, um, my health journey into two categories is sort of pre sobriety and, and sobriety. Um, I handled being sick very, very, very differently uh, when I was younger and, and didn't understand what alcoholism was. And today uh, a spiritual, a spiritual solution is very much a part of how I heal every day. It's a daily, it's daily work for all of us. I think we have to make the choice every day to start all over again and um, and decide how we're are we going to sink into a place of depression and apathy, or are we going to? And I'm sure you're going to discuss this later in the podcast. Or are we going to make certain choices to deal with this? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's so beautifully done in the documentary, and trust me, I'm sick, is that there's no wallowing, <laughs> which is a big part of this journey to to better health, uh, both mental, physical, and spiritual as well. You know that we're there is a certain amount of sitting in the sadness, but we also have to move on with our lives, which is very clear in the message of the documentary, which is something that I personally really related to. So what about, we, we've heard from you, Henrietta, about your husband stepping up as a donor, your mom had stepped up as a donor. We know from Erica that she had a best friend throughout this whole process. And I'm wondering about personal advocates for the three of you. Um, did any of you find along this journey to health that you needed a personal advocate and has that impacted your relationship with the individual? Well, I can certainly speak to that if they, you know, don't want to jump in, but, um, go for yeah, it. No, a hundred percent. Um, you know, when I was younger, uh, I, I had a really significant experience with um, my mother when I was when I was younger, and I had been transferred from the uh, children's hospital in Toronto to the adult hospital. And I met my nephrologist, my kidney physician, um, right before my transplant um, when I was about 18 years old. And you know, as all <laughs> good teenagers do in the 80s, I was all dressed up with my hair and my makeup and my big shoulders <laughs> and went into my appointment. And you probably and looked like you really didn't look sick, huh? <laughs> And I remember um, trying to explain, this is the first time I was meeting my nephrologist, how tired I was and that I was sleeping 12 hours. And he completely dismissed me and said, oh, all teenagers sleep 12 hours. And I lost it. I, I just started sobbing and I could not get my words. I felt so incredibly frustrated that I couldn't that I wasn't heard, that I was not heard by this. And, and this and, is a very common story, particularly among women living with chronic illness. 100%, 100%. And so my mom had to finish the conversation and explain, and she's so hilarious. And she's like, you don't understand. My daughter is a fighter. And, you know, <laughs> Where is your mother from? I'm trying to get that accent now. <laughs> that's exactly right. She's born in Denmark, but learned to uh-huh. speak in England and then lived in Canada. So you figure that out. <laughs> There's our moment of levity. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. And so on the streetcar ride home, she said to me, she turned to me, I remember this. And she said, you look too good. Stop wearing makeup. And oh, very early I understanding. I never forgot that. I mean, I could speak for literally hours about how my husband was my advocate when I was super, super sick with addiction and renal failure and rejection. Um, you and know, something that he mentions in the film, which I think is quite poignant, is the the difference between being in a relationship and being codependent, yes. which is very important to understand that distinction 
when you're in a relationship with someone who is living with chronic illness, be that romantic or otherwise? A hundred percent. That's a very, very hard distinction for people to make, especially when you're dealing with addiction. You know, there was at one point, once I got sober, Kevin and I discussed it and he said, well, what was I supposed to do? You're on dialysis and I would drink beer on dialysis and have a Xanax. And he's like, what was I going to do? Kick you out? It's very, very hard, but I should probably let these lovely ladies talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're doing great, Henrietta. Thank you. Um, Erica and Sarah, do either of you have anything to chime in here about advocacy and personal advocates in your journeys? Uh, Yeah, I can speak to at least, well, I mean, throughout my life, but at the beginning, like my, my parents were very involved um, in my health journey and I was very fortunate to have their support and have them always advocating for me and pushing me to see the next doctor and helping to um, explain my history and all of that. And especially my mom is a nurse. Um, She's a psych nurse, but she obviously went through general nursing school and having her Um, has been invaluable. I mean, she's basically my triage nurse. Um, I feel bad because anytime anything is wrong and the poor woman in the past few weeks with COVID COVID, (laughs) has had me text her every day with something wrong because I'm terrified. Well, Um, I think that's that feeling of terror right now is something that a lot of people across the board are feeling in the Spoonie community. And I think it's important that you bring that up too. Yeah, and trying to um, distinguish what is your normal chronic illness symptom and what could be a symptom of the virus is very confusing. Um, Especially for something like lupus, which can really manifest in numerous ways and affect various systems. Right. Well, and I have chronic chest pain and... There we go. Oh, hi. Sounds like COVID. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, So that has been really fun. Um, But having my mom there to discuss medical things and having her expertise has been just so helpful. Um, especially just because it can be hard to get in touch with a doctor and you don't always want to talk, like call your doctor anytime anything is wrong. <laughs> um, although telehealth exists for just that reason yes. now. So yes, which is very nice. <laughs> there's something to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but having her has been so helpful. Um, and my dad has been incredibly supportive too. Um, and I think, I mean, doing the work with suffering the silence has changed me a hundred percent as a person in so many ways, but because I think at the beginning, because I was so happy to have a diagnosis, I was just like, Oh, it's fine. It's going to be fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, and as I, when I graduated and I started working and seeing what real life was like, um, I realized how much lupus affects everything about my life and everything that I do. And starting Suffering the Silence and talking to other people in the community um, and becoming an advocate has encouraged me to speak more openly about it with the other people in my life, which helps them to better support me and understand my experience. And what a concept that as soon as we (laughs) open up to others, our relationships are strengthened. When we tell people what we need and what we want, it reinforces our relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. I mean, I still like every day it's hard and talking about it is difficult and 
sometimes you feel like people still don't get it and you're like, why don't you get it? I'm trying to tell you about this. And I mean, honestly, in, in this, in in this pandemic, it's been really frustrating. I was really frustrated at the beginning when people weren't taking it seriously or when people were... Oh, at the beginning? You mean that's not still happening uh, right now? Well, no. We know that people are still, you know, hanging out with friends, going out. But um, especially at the beginning when people were, you know, three days in were complaining about being bored, um, I wanted to scream. I was like, this is my life. This is so many people's lives. Um, I stay at home all the time and do nothing. And like, you're going to be fine. You, we are so, if you are at home and you're bored, you are the most privileged right now. If you are not in the hospital and you are not sick and you are not out of work or out of a home, you are so lucky. Um, so yeah, that has been really frustrating. I mean, there's so many things about this that are heartbreaking and so, frustrating and crazy. Particularly for the Spoonie community watching from the sidelines as Mm -hmm. a high risk community who is so often brushed aside um, Mm -hmm. socially and has all these stigmas attached to our, our conversation around Mm -hmm. our illness, right? You know, that the minute we start saying, and now we have to be very strict about protecting ourselves, people judge us at once again. Mm -hmm. And it's this constant repeated cycle, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But it sounds like you've really made the transition from having parents as advocates to becoming your own advocate too. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. working on it. it you yep. know, it's, work. it's a daily thing. Um, but yeah, the community has just really inspired me in a, in a lot of different ways to try to be better. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. That's wonderful. Sarah, do, could you have anything to chime in here about the, uh, the advocacy question? Have you had personal advocates in, in your journey at all, or is it been you stepping up as your own advocate? I think it's been a combination of both. I mean, I'll keep saying this throughout. And as Erica has said, I'm more so now than ever so aware of how lucky I am in many different aspects of my life. Um, and I guess it kind of, it, it also works in with what Henrietta was saying before about the makeup thing that I'm lucky in that from the get-go, my parents believed me. They saw it, they, you know, they got me to the right doctors. Um, and even though I could see in the doctor's eyes that they kind of knew they had no idea what was going on, I still had the faith that they would try their best and that they saw what I was going through. Obviously, like I saw, I've had some ups and some downs with being believed by medical professionals. Um, I've had people tell me, have I heard of something called IBS? Which, yes, oh boy. I have. And oh boy. I have. Um, but thanks. Um, but in terms of, I think one thing that especially our series brought up for me, um, and one of the many, many things that like Erica, I feel like I've learned so much. I mean, I've only been doing advocacy work, I guess, you trust me, I'm sick for a couple of years and Erica's been doing it much longer, but my God, did I not know things then? And I still got to learn now, but I feel like during that process, you know, cause we spoke to, I think, I think I interviewed like upwards of 50 people or something for the series where we filmed with five. Um, but you have a ton of just unbelievable conversations, many of which with Henrietta, who's with us here. Um, but I think a lot of things that came up with me is this huge amount of guilt that I still carry around the idea of not looking sick enough, um, which I'm sure comes oh, up a yeah. lot. Oh, yeah. That's and, big. And do you think especially as a female? Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. And I, I think that for me personally, because, you know, obviously immediately it kind of brings to mind certain moments. Like I remember when I was really sick and I was on the subway in London. And I mean, I happened to look... 12 months bloated 
Um, but I was in so much pain. I generally thought I was going to pass out. And in London, typically, this does not always happen. You're supposed to stand up when someone is pregnant. And I remember having this horrible moment I immediately felt guilty for of like, I wish I looked really sick. I wish I either looked very obviously pregnant or like something was horrifically wrong because I'm going to pass out and no one can help me. But then I also immediately felt this like smack of like, how dare you want to look more sick than you are or claim that space for someone else. And it's been something that I've been kind of going back and forth because, and it's one of the core things I've learned from this series is that there is huge privilege that I'm essentially well passing um, in the sense that you can look at me and not think anything's wrong. So there's not that kind of my sensation of other people judging me immediately before I even open my mouth. Um, and I'm really aware of that. And I'm more aware of the weight of that privilege than I ever have been. Thanks to Trust Me, I'm Sick. And thanks to Erica and Henrietta and everyone else involved. Um, but I also still carry some guilt because there have been moments, thankfully less so now, where I have genuinely wanted to look more sick than I am because, and I guess having thought this through a lot, I think it's essentially to me, the world still has a really redactive view of illness. If you don't present as sick, you're not sick. So by understanding that, that kind of allowed me to feel a bit less guilty about that kind of feeling because it's- Do you think different. that's related to the fact that, you know, the healthcare systems that we're talking about today, the, the NHS in the UK and, and the, excuse me, the US healthcare system, do you think it's because they're really better designed for acute care than preventive care? And that's why there's so much of this reductive behavior? For sure. And I also think, I mean, I think it's linked to a lot of different things. I think because we have, if you look at the kind of history of medicine, we've learned on this kind of model, at least in the 20th century of the diagnostic model, the idea that you're almost your body is all the body is a machine kind of model, i.e. that, you know, we're like an engine and the patient and the doctor are taught to refer to us in parts like this thing is not working. This part is not working. And I think it creates a really, really unhealthy paradigm of our bodies are, it gives us weird like predestined thing that we're supposed to automatically work. And therefore you only deal with it when that part is broken. Um, and there's, I, mean, I could talk for hours on this. But that's exactly <laughs> why people with chronic illness struggle to get appropriate levels of care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for anyone listening who hasn't read about it, I found it fascinating when I first read about the ideas of like where that came from. And like it came up basically in the 20th century with the rise of uh, machines and factories and stuff that kind of became that kind of weirdly bled into how doctors referred to patients and vice versa. Um, but yeah, I think that I think industrialization of healthcare yeah. of yeah, the human basically. body, the commoditization and industrialization of the human body, which spoiler hasn't gone well. Um, yeah. so yeah, but as a final kind of shout out, obviously, especially now during COVID, I also, as a terms of advocates, um, as well as family members, we count the NHS as one, um, because, uh, where I come from in England, we have the national health service and it's not perfect and it's really, really under a lot of stress now, but, um, Having spent extensive time here in the US, I'm also half American, despite the accent, um, <laughs> and kind of seeing experiences of people on both sides, especially true, trust me, I'm sick. I am so grateful to have had a kind of safety net uh, there. So hopefully mm. things get better here too. Yeah, absolutely. So what does a typical day look like when you're living with chronic illness? Who wants to jump in on this one? <laughs> I'm wondering how you balance the demands of work and life. And I, I know that uh, Erica's got something to say about this. So Erica, go for it. You do. Um, I mean, I think I've, I'm incredibly lucky to have kind of figured out a way to primarily work from home. Um, and I think, thankfully, a lot, of, a lot more remote work opportunities are being created now. Um, but I just kind of like fell into doing social media 
um, for a variety of companies. And that's primarily what I do for work. And I can do that all from home. Um, and it's a way to be able to take care of my body and make sure that if I need to work from my bed, I can work from my bed. Um, and that's amazing. But it also, for my larger career goals, I'm an actor and now producer and want to do a million things, but those things, um, primarily and those things and the entertainment industry, uh, require a lot of energy and physical ability. Um, so being able to work from home to save my energy for when I do book a shoot or I am shooting a docuseries for two years, um, is a privilege, but that's just kind of how, you know, so many people living with chronic illness have to live their life and make their decisions is saying no to things that, um, I guess are lower on the priority list to save yourself for things that really matter to you. Um, sometimes you, um, save yourself for a day that, um, your body still doesn't feel energized or, um, feel like it can be at its best, but you try. Um, but yeah, I've been really lucky to be able to do that. So I, I mean, I, I can, even when I'm so sick, I can't fall asleep early. So I usually go to bed kind of late. So I wake up around nine and then usually, um, assess, am I feeling like I'm dying today? Or, um, the fact I, that you, I mean, I want people who don't have chronic illness to understand that question that so many of us wake up in the morning and have to say, do I feel like death today or not? And that will determine whether or not we're functional. I mean, this is the kind of situation that people mm-hmm. living with chronic illness go through day by day. A hundred percent. So you, and, and also you can wake up feeling fine and then two minutes later you feel awful. So it's, it's that constant checking in with yourself throughout the whole day, um, about what you can do. Um, so hypervigilance, which is yes. in and of itself a full-time job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, like I feel so privileged that I mostly work from home. So I'm able to work from bed and work from the couch and take a break and pretend to nap. I just can't nap. So lay in my bed, pray I'm going to fall asleep. And I don't usually, but having the ability to, you know, have my home be my office and work from places that can um, help me or have an ice um, ice pack on or a heating pad on while I'm working um, is a huge privilege, and I'm aware of that. But um, really just checking in with myself all day about what I can do um, as the day goes on. Can I Absolutely. Just oh, yeah, Sarah, go for it. So having spent two years watching Erica work from home, um, and by the way, I always have like a vague apology in my head because I famously emailed Erica two and a half years ago, whatever it is now, saying, could we have a quick chat about chronic illness? And it escalated <laughs> wildly, as I'm sure you're Well, two and a half years later, you're still having the conversation. <laughs> quick um, chat indeed. But I, as Erica was just talking, I was visualizing the things that I've seen us do. Like I've, Erica and I've worked from hospitals. Like we were in the middle of a meeting. Erica needed to go get her infusion for lupus. So she, we literally had her laptop on her lap. She refused to stop the meeting. So we drove to the hospital. We edited from the, um, the suite where she was having her infusion um but we've also been having really intense conversations about production while erica is holding you know heating pads uh massage what's the thing you put on your back what's the the oh i i have a really weird um massage hook 
thing. There we go. <laughs> She's just producing. So that's I just one of those. It's one of those acupuncture pressure point massage yes. things. Yeah, the like S shaped things. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but the reason I say that is just um, uh, Erica's work ethic, and I know that she kind of tamper this down by saying that she does what she can, but um, is unreal. And her ability to work during pain in because of pain is um, incredible. And she is also very good at listening to her body. So well done. Erica. I think so, Sarah. Mm. That's really sweet. This is the other wonderful thing is that here I am with a group of three other women and you're all so supportive of each other and of each other's health and of each other's work. And yeah, big group hugs. It's, it's really wonderful to see women come together to create something like this that will help other people too. Um, what about this? I mean, I know, Erica, you talked about the fact that you've been able to find work that's adaptive, but what about people who have that nine to five? I mean, I know that um, there are people who are on your, uh, on the documentary who talk about the fact that like they have to stay employed to get health insurance, to get insulin and things like that. What's, what's our take on this nine to five grind? Um, yeah, so that was actually, so one thing that's important to explain, I guess, is that we consciously made our series thematic because we wanted to provide, because there was just so, um, you know this, you produce an incredible podcast series about it, but there is so Thank much you. to talk about when it comes to illness. And so one of the kind of many, many solutions that we came up with was to make sure that even if we couldn't discuss it all, we would try in these short films, the series is made up of five, five minute films, um, to look at different elements of everyday life and how that works with illness. So one of the themes we talked about was work and illness. And for that, as with all the other episodes, we wanted to make sure that to kind of represent as broad of a spectrum of experiences as possible. We had people in that film who had very, very different experiences when it came to work and school, you know, university with, with their different illnesses. And again, we also have five contributors with very different life experiences, um, illnesses, experiences with those illnesses. So um, the idea was to kind of try and create, even if it was a baby one, like a little tapestry of that. And so for the for the the film that we made about work and illness was a really, really important one to all of us, not least because I think it's for some reason not talked about that much. I think when we're allowed to talk about illnesses, which is not often um, in the scheme of things, um, money and except jobs. except here on the pod and yeah, suffering the silence. we can talk about it all we want <laughs> this is like this um uh but for some reason every you know in our research it just felt like it wasn't i hadn't heard that many people talk about it so we have in the film um cassandra who is one of our wonderful subjects uh she describes really really beautifully how challenging it's been for her um basically handling a nine-to-five alongside her illness and it's a really beautiful scene where she kind of explains that essentially she wakes up and she, like Erica said, she obsesses. Is this going to be, I wake up and I can do my makeup before I go to work and I get ready and I go, or is it going to be, I wake up five minutes before I go leave the house, go deal with it, come back and I sleep the entire rest of the evening. Um, and obviously in a five minute film, you can't encompass all that it is around illness and work. But I think one thing that felt really important was to kind of consider how supportive because you know you could work in two very similar organizations but it's also so important how your boss and your colleagues view you and your illness and how seriously they take it and cassandra i'm sure would say that she's definitely had a, a range of experiences in that department um so i think it was it was important to us to really shed light on that and the fact that like Erica said in a lot of ways if you're able to adapt that is a privilege in itself um and i think especially when you have a really long day and you know that you do not have a friendly work environment to be walking into 
the additional, not even just the pain of your illness and whatever else you're going on a health thing, but the psychological stress of if I don't go to work, what will that say? What will the repercussions go if I do, but I don't do a good job? And I think that psychological element that even if no one actually says anything is still a huge component of your day in a way that someone else in the exact same role as you wouldn't have is enormous. Um, and that's one thing that I really wish people understood that illness and work is the same work experience you've also got to deal with with your nine to five. But I've also got so much more to kind of bring to the table with it. Um, so all the more reason to have supportive workplaces. Absolutely, absolutely. And adaptive ones, as we're seeing during this COVID epidemic again. So we know, Henriette, I know earlier you mentioned the story about the makeup and the shoulder pads. <laughs> I'm wondering about situations that you guys have been in perhaps where you've been in that situation where you've had to justify or validate to someone else that you had a chronic illness that they couldn't see and what those situations have looked like, how they've played out. Oh my gosh. Um, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know that I can think of anything right now because, you know, I've never, I'm not, I'm not true. I've never worked in a traditional environment. Um, I'm, I'm supposed, you know, I'm an artist. I, I acted for long periods of time and I did have after my first um, kidney transplant, I had many, many years of very, very good health. In fact, I would say um, ignorance was bliss and I was young and uh, we didn't have this. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have this kind of accessibility to, um, information and even, and, and the, the way that we talk on social media. I mean, I have like hashtags with all kinds of young kids, that's always saying, um, who've had kidney transplants. And so, you know, it's a really interesting period of time for me to look back on because I really just kind of ran with the gift horse that was my health and didn't look back. I didn't look it in the mouth, so to speak. So, um, you know, I, I honestly, I don't want to drag this out. I, I don't know that, you know, I think, I think I do run into stigmas with alcoholism and where, or really what I refer to, I'm more of a, of a drug addict, really an addiction. Um, and that's what I think I've learned is that I can't really explain this to people. I can't really change people's minds. What I can, and, and this is not to take away from trying to do it, but I think the thing that I would ask people to do um, is just listen, is just listen to people that have chronic illness and invisible illness. Um, I don't know if this, I don't want this to sound cynical or, or disheartening or anything, but I don't think I'm, I'm never really going to understand what it's like to not have water. You know, like I can take something like that for granted. I can't imagine what it's like when I hear that people walk for miles in Africa to get a bucket of water. I can't imagine, you know, it's so annoying when the water is turned off, the city turns your water off for an hour or a day. Right. So this is not to sound cynical, but I've been, I've been around the block now with my health for a long, long time. And it's, it's a very, I've had to kind of find a, a, a place of acceptance that unless somebody goes through it themselves, and this kind of ties into what Erica was saying, you know, it is really, really frustrating to hear how bored people are because they're stuck, they're stuck at home. I mean, we just, I think people with chronic illness and invisible illness just over time develop an appreciation for the, the little things 
um, that the healthy, and I capitalize that, you know, capital T, capital H, will just simply never understand. I mean, I'm just looking in, in awe and wonder at social media and just like wondering, do people not know, just like read a book? I don't, what, what, I don't understand. I, I'm literally flabbergasted. You're talking about empathy and compassion, which I think, uh, you know, we're seeing every day more and more that it's a struggle to get some people on that bus. <laughs> right? You know, Absolutely. that there are helpers, but then we're seeing this rise of really mad idealism that's paired with individualism and really rampant selfishness. So it's these like these two sides of a a very strange coin and we're trying to find something in the middle, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I spoke about this in, in the, in the documentary and, and it's, you know, my experience now is just, you know, just get so incredibly frustrated when people would just say, well, you look great because it really, I, when I try to have conversations with people about how I was feeling uh, physically and, and emotionally and the toll that it takes, you know, it, I'd either be shut down with the, well, you look great or something similar uh, to that. Um, or, well, you know, what can I do? Which, <laughs> I don't know, that equally, equally, I found equally abrasive too, because it felt like a kind of dismissive thing. And, you know, what I try to focus on more than anything is building the community of people that are going through the same thing that I'm going through. And that's where I found a lot of healing um, through, which is essentially the main spiritual principle of like a place like Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic talking to another. And again, I know I keep talking about this, but this, um, the, the people that I'm finding on social media who've had kidney transplants, who live with chronic pain, who live with tinnitus, who live with the pain of migraines, um, I'm finding a great deal of comfort in that. And also it's deepening my gratitude for what I have. I have, in fact, yesterday was the nine-year anniversary of my kidney transplant with my husband. Oh, congratulations. That's huge. It's phenomenal. And that has rel- been relatively uncomplicated. All the other stuff, getting sober and the chronic pain has, has been happening at the same time. But, you know, there's a young girl who I'm following who she's in her late 20s and she's on her second kidney transplant. And they're trying to, like, not keep her at Cedars because of COVID-19. She went into acute rejection. She's at home. She got a kidney from a man who overdosed in jail and, you know, and, and she has to take it because she's been on dialysis for years. Anyway, I, I'm probably rambling off course here. No, but. not at all. I think what you're talking about is the fact that sometimes we're forced to make these very difficult decisions and sometimes we have no choice. But the other part of that is, you know, I wonder if, if it's not helpful for someone to say, but you look fine. And if it's not helpful for someone on the outside of chronic illness to say, what can I do? How can they help? You know, is it, is it that those of us in this community can only commune with others in the community or is it that we actually just need you to sit with us and be like, yeah, that sucks. I, you know, the, the ladies can probably speak to this better than me. And again, I don't want it to sound cynical at all. Um, but for me, that's where the majority of my healing is coming from. It, I do think it's incredible. I wrote a whole book about getting sober um, well, I'm going to link to it on the website page for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that was, I completely believe 100% in the power of telling our stories, that it, um, it can educate and it can enlighten and it can empower people with this information. But I also understand and accept that not everybody is in a place where they're going to be able to hear our stories and, 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 and be able to um, know what to do with that information. There will be people that we can reach. And I am finding in the writing of my book that there are an extraordinary number of people now writing to me saying, I never understood addiction that way. I never understood that you really do lose the power of choice. Um, And it is very much a medical memoir too. And it details a lot about kidney transplantation and the medications that we have to take and how the side effects are so painful. So, you know, I, I try not to generalize about humanity, but I try to take humanity on a case by case basis. And that's the best. I think you're allowed to be cynical then. (laughs) Look, I'm with you a little bit on that one too. I'm going to throw it to Erica and Sarah. Uh, Any instances where you've been confronted and forced to validate the existence of your illness for those who couldn't understand? Oh, yeah. Um, um, I think I have a lot of of experiences um, where I feel like people didn't understand. And I think the hardest times and the times that that come to mind immediately are situations where I feel like I was almost forced to be super vulnerable and disclosed because someone really wasn't listening to me. And then I was shut shut down. And those are the experiences that feel the most painful. I just have this um, situation where I was home a few years ago over the holidays and it was a little reunion holiday party with my old dance school, um, where I had, you know, I had, I was a competitive Irish dancer for 10 years. Thank you um, for admitting that. <laughs> no idea how much joy it gives me to remember that. Thank you, Erica. Yes. I'm um, only wishing now that we could have a demonstration. So yeah. That's no. your next film, Sarah. Yes. Honestly, I, think I haven't proposed it. I do have to say there's a great documentary about Irish dancing called Jig, and I think it deserves a, like, cheer-like. Oh, my God. I, this is series. what I'm going to watch tonight. Fantastic. That's great. Um, I genuinely thought you were going to say there, there is out there, like, footage of you doing it, no. and my brain blew. Like, no, <laughs> I quit too young, um, and I wasn't good enough. But um, I was at this reunion with my dance school, and I was kind of in the midst of a flare, and... I I deeply miss dancing and performing like in more physical situations um, very much. Um, And, you know, I was able to dance a little bit and then I had to sit down and my, my best friends in the world are from Irish dancing um, and they were there and kind of backing me up. But I sat down and I remember my teacher was like, Erica, like get up and do a step. And I was aside from the fact that like, this is a form of dance that's very tough on the joints. Oh, it's very high cardio. Oh, I was in the best shape of my life when I was 12, like six pack. Amazing. Great. We'll never (laughs) be there again. Um, it's amazing exercise, but it's very difficult. So, um, my teacher was like, Erica, get up. And I said, "I I can't. And she was like, like rolled her eyes and was like, come on, everyone is doing it. And I was like, I have lung issues right now. I can't. And I was on the verge of tears and she just kind of dismissed me and whatever, but just the like rolling of the eyes probably, you know, they, they know I'm sick, but 
I'm but not... also being met with dismissal every time. I mean, yeah. This is what happened to you. It's what happened to Henrietta. It's that being met with someone who's like tough, everyone else is doing it, but like not yeah. acknowledging the fact that we're different from everyone else. Right. Um, and it's embarrassing. Um, all the times that I can think of are these times where you're kind of like forced to say, I can't do this, which is often just so painful because you probably really want to do the thing. Um, and then being met with that dismissal is so heartbreaking. Um, and yeah, I don't know how to fix that. I agree with Henrietta on a lot of the points that, um, a lot of people are not going to understand it if they haven't experienced it. And I, I think that's true for the most part and it's really heartbreaking, but I do think our storytelling and being honest does help. Like I can say that, um, I haven't really experienced addiction in my life with a family member or a friend or myself. And then reading Henrietta's book, I was really able to understand it in a way that I hadn't before. And I think that is so beautiful and, um, it, I think it does show that people can, if you want to, you can be empathetic and though you're not going to, I'm not Marianne is doing lots of thumbs up over this one, because that's absolutely true that like, there are so many stories out there that it's on you to actually do the work and right. read the stories and yeah. watch the documentaries. Yeah. And though I'm not going to know what it feels like to be an addict, I can empathize with that and I can listen do people like Henrietta speak about her experience and want to be a support and want to listen? And I think the, the listening aspect, like Henrietta said, is huge. And I think the people in my life that I feel like have been the most supportive are just there to listen. And for me personally, as someone who is open to talking about my experience, to have someone like ask follow-up questions or ask more specific questions like, oh, what does it feel like when you have chest pain? Do you get scared? What are you most worried about? Things like that, that shows that someone is actually genuinely interested in your experience can mean so much. Um, And someone just saying, oh my God, that must suck. Or like friends that are texting me now, like, oh, this must be really extra scary for you. The, um, with COVID, like, yes. And that makes me feel seen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's beautifully said. So, all three of you have mentioned privilege uh, throughout this conversation and acknowledging the privilege that, that from which you speak. And I'm wondering if you'd all presented differently, if you'd all been women of color, if you'd all been men, maybe. Do you think that your experiences would have been different in the medical system? I think from everything that I, I mean, I have eyeballs so I can read and I have, um, done a pretty big effort in the last couple of years of listening as much as I can um and I guess I mean firstly I think in terms of the it's almost like these guys have been saying in terms of illness I'm never going to resolutely know the experience of anyone apart from me what I've gone from and what sorry what I've gone through um I think if you look at the numbers and the statistics of how especially women of color are treated in the medical system it is abhorrent so I think from a kind of statistical point of view there's pretty solid backing that you can say yes it would be very very different um, and on the flip side, do we think if we were white men with these illnesses, we would have gotten the diagnoses four years sooner? I mean, arguably, I don't know if it would have been four years earlier, but I do know that if you kind of remove the inherent, oh, they're being hysterical element from the room, um, 
I think there, I'm sure all of us could have experiences where maybe, you know, at least the kind of intent of a conversation might have been slightly different. Um, I can't speak for everyone else. I think it kind of links to me back to what these guys were saying about can you ever truly expect a doctor, regardless of how you present, what your illness is, how hysterical you are, um, to really understand what you're going through? And to me, it's really important to point out that I don't see it as a kind of red light and green light ding, they understand. I don't I think that's a kind of a false paradigm. And I think um, I totally understand where Henrietta's coming from. And I think, again, one of the major things I learned from Henrietta, who has gone through this way longer than the rest of us have, that I think um, it is she's absolutely correct i think the majority of people will never understand even with a similar condition will never understand what you're going through but i think that doesn't mean that it's not worth trying to educate and encourage more empathy from other people um and i think even if you get a kind of 20 percent greater education than there was before that's probably going to help people say less stupid stuff to you that moves the needle quite significantly yeah so i think and again going back to your question about if you presented differently i think ultimately i mean throughout society itself it's not kind of exclusive to illness we know again statistically that people especially people of color are treated differently um and i think it's up to us to uphold their stories to share their experiences and that was something that we spoke about really really candidly especially with cassandra in our series and that was something that was important for her to raise with us as well um because you know she pointed out that we are two white women who have kind of declared ourselves advocates and are hoping to shed the word for the series and i think she was such an important force in our documentary constantly reminding us to check ourselves and to check are we just pushing a narrative that works for us um and i'm really really grateful for her contributions and everyone's contributions and showing us their different perspectives the same with giuliani the same with Leslie, the same with henrietta they've all given us different experiences but i think um we need to make extra space for people whose stories are really, really not heard. And those are good people of color. I don't think you could have said it any better. And I can see Erica snapping her fingers back there. So we know we're on the right track there. So we've talked about a few different healthcare systems as well today. We've talked about the healthcare system in Canada, healthcare system here in the U.S., healthcare system in the U.K. Given the experiences that all three of you have had, in what ways are you seeing those systems that you've experienced work for patients? And in what ways are you seeing them needing to change immediately? I know we've talked about the acute versus preventive care models, but what else can you point out for us specifically? I'll start with the UK, maybe. Um, I would also just paraphrase this. I have, um, or print this, I have not lived in the UK for three, four years now. Um, I think, like I said earlier, ultimately, to me, the benefit is that there is just some form of safety net exists. Um, I definitely think there's a lot of conversation in the UK right now about needing more preventative care, understanding the economic value to providing preventative care. Um, I think obviously relative to large parts of the US, there is more support there. Um, that said, the NHS is hugely underfunded, which is a massive issue for its staff, for people who desperately need the care that those staff provide. So I don't think by any means it's kind of leaps and bounds perfect. Um, but I think from my experience and my personal experiences there, I think the very presence of an entity like that is, I think, a really important one for society to have. It's the idea that we care about people enough to have a, you know, a, a place for them. To make health care a human right. You care enough about them to give them health care guaranteed. Mm-hmm. 
and also i think it's there's a huge again i mean i'm not going to paraphrase every person in this perspective on the nhs but i think there's a huge sense of pride in it as well this is something we've had for a very long time and there's extra focus on it now as there is everywhere for the amazing work that people within the nhs do um and i'm hoping that coming out of this covid uh situation that maybe more funding is put into it but i think across the board there just needs to be more focus on preventative and on psychological support for people with chronic illnesses. Absolutely. I think that's really well said. Henrietta, have you got something to add here? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Go on. Um, look, I'm, I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying I, um, I'm a Canadian and an American citizen, and I absolutely loved the 22 years that I lived in California. Um, so I had my first transplant in the Canadian system and then I had my second transplant, um, in the American healthcare system Ah. during that period of time when I was diagnosed with chronic uh, kidney transplant rejection, um, Kevin, I lost, I was unable to work at the time I was acting. I lost my insurance through screen actors guild. Um, I was thrown on disability for one year and then Cobra. And then I had to find my own group healthcare plan and my premiums just, they just Mm -hmm. completely skyrocketed. Um, And it's such an ass backwards system because you're sick and you need help and you need support. And then you find yourself in the situation where your premiums have gone up and you have to pay, you know, it was, they went up like 800% or something like that. It was absolutely insane. And so, so this financial component to it, and it was, it was years. I'm not even talking like the one year of the transplant. It was years and years and years of every single dime that Kevin and I were making was out the window before it even got into our hands. He was a very successful headshot photographer in Los Angeles. I, um, I had some disability for, I think it was seven years and all they would do is cover my monthly premiums. Nothing else was covered. Copays, um, medications, special, you know, special diagnostic tests, nothing was covered. Um, we were spending on average, I think it was between 18 and $26,000 a year just on health costs. And like I said, you know, it, if that had been removed, we would have had a very nice life, um, it's a comfortable existence, you know. So there's just, you know, in addition to the, just the spiritual, just draining of being in a situation where you're sick and all of a sudden every aspect of your life is being taken away from you. You know, when I got increasingly sicker, um, I wasn't able to go to the gym. I had to stop acting. I had to stop just, you know, even just going for a walk with my dog was incredibly draining and stressful and exhausting. And then you add that financial uh, stranglehold, that complete, um, it's it's just like an albatross, not only around my neck, but around my husband's neck, who was essentially my caregiver at that time. And, um, and it broke us. It completely broke us. It, there was no, um, there was no reprieve every single day. You are physically broken um, and, and you're financially broken. And as a result, you become emotionally and spiritually broken. You know, there were, I would, I can safely say, and absolutely addiction was mixed into all of this, but I can safely say, you know, we didn't laugh for years. This was, this is a system, as, as Sarah has so beautifully articulated, you know, it's not a preventative system. And so when, when, when this, it's, it's so overburdened and broken that it's not, um, it's not set up. It's, it's just, it's not set up in a way that actually helps a sick person. 
And so we ended up making the decision last year uh, to move back to Canada pretty much for that reason. And it was a frustrating decision on some level because in a way we felt like we were being pushed out of America and nobody wants to feel that way. But I'm, and, and again, to tie into this like entitled theme or this, you know, this privilege theme rather, not entitled, um, I feel incredibly grateful, like so profoundly grateful that we had the option to do this, to move back to Canada. In fact, we're now in a city called Winnipeg, which is my husband's hometown. And the cost of living is very low here. We have a wonderful quality, quality of life. And so quality of life is not just about um, your physical health. It's about your emotional and spiritual health. And when you're dealing with a financial strain like that, and, and we're not the only people, I mean, there's thousands, if not maybe millions of people. Oh, definitely millions. Dealing with the same thing where it's just a constant trudge that, that, that increases your physical burden. So I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to be in this position today. And the system here, you know, as soon as I got into this, back into the system here, they're sending me, um, you know, do this uh, poop test. I mean, it's, just, it's like a colonoscopy thing. They're sending me all of these things. Come have a free breast exam. Come have this. Come have that. So they're offering you preventive care. They're offering preventative care. Yeah. Because they want you to stay healthy so that you don't become a burden on the system when all Mm. of a sudden everything collapses. So that to me sounds like the first version of socialized healthcare that's working (laughs) in this discussion so far. So that's great news. It's certainly not perfect as Sarah was saying. It's, um, but honestly, the, I, I happen to land in a city that has the best transplant center in Canada. And for that, I'm infinitely grateful. You know, these doctors, I've already been, we've only been here for 10 months and I've already been there um, three or four times now. And they send me monthly requisitions for blood work. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's heartbreaking that, you know, I'll just end with this. Kevin was in a, in a subway around the time we were leaving Los Angeles and some young man had hit his head and it was, it was visible. You could see he was badly bruised and bloodied. And he said out loud to his friend that he wasn't going to go to the hospital because he didn't want to pay the money because he simply didn't have the money to pay for it. That's, that's reprehensible. And I don't have the solution for it. I'm not going to say that I have the solution for it, but our solution was to leave a system that didn't work for us anymore. It, It was killing us. I think that's perfectly said. Sarah? To follow on from that, I think this is a kind of having been brought up out of the system of the the US, what Henrietta said I think is shocking to all of us. I mean, shocking, obviously familiar to sadly a lot of us. Um, But I think it's important to point out that it's not just this utopian idea that in the future that that won't be a thing. Right now in countries like Canada and the UK, it is insane to conceive of the fact that if you get into an ambulance, you're going to be potentially ruined financially. Like I remember when I first moved here and I found that you've got to pay for to give birth and you've got to pay to have an ambulance. Obviously to all of your listeners, I will sound incredibly privileged and like, how does she not know that's a thing? In England, it's not the case. If you get cancer, you are dealing with the idea of having cancer and the financial strains of maybe losing out on work and those accepted things. It is not the part for the majority of people in the UK that you've also got to even begin to think about this is the cost of this, let alone are going to ruin me. And I think it's important just to remember, like, and I'm so thrilled for Henrietta, because obviously we've been with you, you know, before and um, since your move, that um, you had that option. And it's just, it makes me so angry because especially the country with this amount of wealth, like that should not be a thing that everyone's like, yeah, well, that's the reality. Like right now in real time in other 
also successful industrial countries in the world that isn't you know the situation so i think it's it's just extra challenging to hear that when you know that it, it's not like a given oh it's a big country and therefore um when people are going through illness they should be just focusing on getting themselves through the illness they do not need that additional crazy cloud of finances yeah beautifully said all of you so let's talk about your advocacy work you're all advocates now and you know i'm wondering about the work, the ongoing work of Suffering the Silence, the ongoing work with documentaries that perhaps you guys will be doing, the ongoing writing, Henrietta, that you might be doing. What's next for all of you? And and how do you think as as chronic illness patients, you were called to advocacy yourselves? Um, <clears throat> I can go first. Um, again, I, I fell into it. Um, just in my conversations and experience with Ali and, and talking about what we had gone through. And I mean, I've always been in, involved and interested in social issues and um, politics and those kind of things. And I, for a while, thought I wanted to be a nurse. And I've always been in, interested um, in healthcare and all of that. But I never imagine myself being an advocate for this. And I, I didn't really think there was an opportunity or know that this community existed and finding it has been incredibly empowering and something that I also found myself feeling empowered by was like finding these words of chronic illness, like Sarah talking about not even understanding what that means, but realizing like, this is a thing. And this is something I identify with, you know, the spoon theory, or even realizing that I could identify as disabled. And, and, you know, that is something that a lot of people don't want to be identified with, or don't like that word. That's something that when I got involved um, with this organization called Diversability, um, which is a disability um, a wonderful organization. Yeah. They're great. Um, um, I realized that I could identify as disabled. And though, again, um, I realized my privilege and in, um, not presenting as such, um, so that in like certain job situations or auditions or just social situations, um, that is not perceived right off the bat. Um, is a privilege, but um, finding that word made me feel really empowered because so much of our experience is dismissed um, and is looked down upon. So acknowledging that like, yes, I am disabled. There are things that I cannot do. And that is the reality of my experience felt, um, again, I keep saying empowering, but felt really empowering for me. Um, and making art and obviously working with suffering the silence and what I've talked about before has been an incredible experience for me. Um, and some of the work that we've been doing in the past few years, um, is hosting retreats, um, specifically designed for people with chronic illness. We have had, um, for the past four years, a retreat, um, at this wonderful, um, place called Zeno Mountain Farm, which is basically if you've watch the new Netflix documentary, Crip Camp. It's like real life Crip Camp. Um, and they um, host a variety of retreats and camps for a, a bunch of different communities, but mostly for people living with disability. And we host a um, yearly retreat there, which is like four to five days 
of about 30 people living with chronic illness. And, you know, the whole program is designed for people with chronic illness. And it's like the most beautiful, amazing thing in the world. Um, and we are starting to create more in different cities because there's a really high demand for it. We had to put 70 people on the wait list this year um, for the Vermont one. And so we were supposed to be hosting a new one in June in upstate New York, but we are not going to be doing that. But hopefully when um, we are able to, we will be hosting more. Um, But this opportunity for people to connect with people that have gone through similar things in person is so, so beautiful and is a opportunity that I think a lot of people deserve. Um, so that's something that we're focusing on for suffering the silence. But, um, for me personally, um, working on trust me, I'm sick was a life changing experience in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think we're, it was really hard working on something that's so close to home. And um, poor Sarah had to deal with my anxiety of properly um, representing the community. Like I was so, so nervous. Um, I think we all go through that kind of guilt, shame spiral because that's so yeah. naturally connected to being chronically ill. But then right. representing others, as you say, absolutely. It's an additional well, burden. There's so little media that has to has to do with our community. So putting yeah. something out there, especially something that is made by people with chronic illness, which I'm so proud of and more things need to be done that way. Um, but I was so nervous about people being offended or feeling like we didn't represent them properly or making these like broad generalized statements or anything like that. Um, thankfully for the most part, that was not the case, but um I do want to do more with the community art-wise, like as an actor, and I would like to do something like a narrative piece that has to do um, with chronic illness because I think, you know, again, nothing like that really exists. So that's something I really want to do, whether it's like someone else's or I figure out how to write something or, um, but that's a dream of mine. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think just seeing where life takes me and where these projects go to next and all of that. Um, so yeah, sorry I I talked for so long. Not at all. Don't you dare apologize. It's wonderful what you're saying. Henrietta, what about you? You've written your book. Are you continuing to write about your experiences? Um, I, I do have another book, um, that I've started to work on, but truthfully, um, you know, this whole experience of writing about getting sober and addiction and kidney transplantation. And it was, um, and I self-published this book. And what I have done is worked really, really hard at uh, promoting it, primarily on, on social media, to be truthful. And I'm finding this, it's beyond my wildest dreams, truthfully. Like it's selling very well. But what's happening is that um, people are writing to me through Facebook. They're writing to me through Instagram. Essentially, kind of what Erica was saying too, saying that they understand addiction now in a different way. And I can't even tell you how um, empowering that is and exciting that is because my own father died of alcoholism at 38. And I was 10. And I never understood why 
I never understood. Like, how could you, how could that be possible? How, why you had a beautiful wife and two young, healthy kids at the time, and you were a doctor and how is that even possible? So to be um, creating relationships with people and, um, and, and, and fostering discussion about what addiction is. And I also have like an author page on Facebook and I, I, post these pieces about, um, about addiction, about illness, about coronavirus, all of these things and my musings and reflections on it. And it's, I've been having a lot of discussions with people. Some people are more, um, abrasive than others, but what I'm trying to do is just from a very, very honest and open and tolerant place um, there's a lot of people that come to me and they're like, well, it's not a disease. It's not this, it's not that. And instead of simply um, dismissing them or deleting them or banning the user, like trying to have a discussion with them about it. And so my point is, is slowly but surely I'm building somewhat of a decent author platform. And my dream really is to get into medical schools somewhat to honor the death of my father, but to speak at that level to medical students about what addiction is and that it really is a trifold illness that it is a, a it's like a physical allergy that once you've crossed that line that power of choice line you really you just lose you just lose the power of choice your body can no longer i can simply not take one pill or one sip anymore and then it's coupled with this kind of mental obsession that we have to keep trying to treat justifying and rationalizing finding a way to to justify taking the pill or the drink and then it's we really believe that it's somewhat of a spiritual deficiency and so sarah was sort of speaking about this earlier how we in the medical establishment um in western medicine tends to you know compartmentalize like and just very it's very diagnostic by nature like this is just what you are you're, you're just your physical condition and the spiritual malady is very much how I, I treat my addiction, my alcoholism, whatever you want to call it. But it's also how I treat my skin pain. It's also how I treat my nerve pain. It's also how I treat migraines. Um, and I really want to, I, I do a lot of very things that have been around for centuries, man, like prayer, meditation. So you can see, well, your, your listeners can't, but I have a sauna behind me. You know, it's how you eat. It's all of these spiritual things really do contribute to our overall emotional, um, spiritual and physical health. And I do not think the medical establishment in my experience understands that, that we are mind, body, spirit, and that's what has to be treated. So if I can get to a place with my platform and go in and speak to medical students about that, about really what addiction is, um, and, and, and chronic illness and living with chronic illness as someone in recovery. That's really what my dream is. And, and my next book, and Sarah will be happy to know that her boyfriend is sitting next to me. That happens to be Walter White, my basset hound, um, is about the healing power of, of, of dogs essentially. And how that's, that's, it really is. Sarah's like hands up. So excited right now. <laughs> I'm quite excited too. I love anything about pets and chronic illness because so many people come on the show and say, get yourself a pet. A hundred percent. Now I can't tell you how I've been on my knees. Like I, I pray, I don't know what it is that I pray to. Walter's there with me. I'm crying. I have a migraine. He's curled up with me. You know, when I would have really brutal skin pain, he's sniffing my pain. Like you know, there's just something otherworldly about them. And it takes, and it just, it just sort of transcends when they're around. I think if you have trouble connecting to spirituality, 
pets can help you channel into that too, because they are, they exist on an additional plane. Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Sarah, what about you? What's next for this documentary filmmaker? Are you continuing to partner with Suffering the Silence? Do you have more chronic illness projects coming up? Thank you. So um, I guess before we even launched the project online, we had a lot of kind of questions from people saying they wanted to see it. And I remember Erica and I in the depths of the edit process responding that we also wanted to see it. (laughs) Um, Basically, I think for us uh, going into this, we knew that making a documentary would be challenging. Um, And I can say hand on heart that I'm so proud of everything that we did, both the final product, but also just everything that got us there. Um, And so whenever people would ask us like, when's the next one coming out? I think we're still only about two months or three months since we launched it. So I think we're taking a little bit of a breather. Um, At the same time, we're kind of working behind the scenes to get it seen in more places. I've been really lucky that a couple of different universities have reached out and want us to speak. So we're going to be hopefully speaking at Oxford in um, the fall, which would be good if that still happens. Oh, that's very exciting. I hope you'll be able to get over there. Yeah. Thank you. Me too. Um, And in addition to that, yeah, so I'm, I'm a filmmaker. It's kind of my day job. I'm very lucky to be able to do that, especially right now. So I, uh, since completing Trust Me, I'm Sick, I produced a series for the New York Times of short documentaries I'm on another season of that for them. And one thing that, I mean, I for sure want kind of coming back to stories around illness to kind of be a permanent in my career. Obviously not every project I do, I think will be specifically linked to that. But even in a meeting I was having last week about a completely separate um, subject that I was doing for Times, uh, a story came up about someone living with HIV. And uh, it was just such a beautiful example of the massive knowledge. There's a lot still to be learned. Um, but that I've gained from doing this series. And I felt a lot more uh, powerful in my ability to kind of, when we were talking about this, to making sure uh, that uh, I made it clear that if we were to do a subject um, that involved that kind of angle, that we addressed it properly and that we really made sure that we were um, using the correct terminology, that we weren't referring to it as someone with AIDS, all this kind of stuff. I think I learned volumes from Giuliani in our series who is um, living undetectable with HIV. And um, so I think that whether or not I'm doing a story that specifically focuses on illness, what we have built with Trust Me, I'm Sick on a personal level, on a professional level, on being less of an awful person level, um, I think I'm really going to carry with me. Um, I would love to keep working with Suffering the Silence. Erica and I somehow are still best friends um, throughout this kind of process. Um, and I really, really value that because I think anyone who's made any form of art, especially documentaries, knows that it's really, really tough. And I'm just so grateful that um, kind of moving forward, we still have great ongoing relationships with all of our subjects, Henrietta Elks included. I generally squealed. It, my audio wasn't on when I saw you on camera for the first time because um, we haven't seen you in a while. Um, but yeah, so I think in terms of me, it's just trying to get Trust Me, I'm Sick, the word out around that trying to do more stories uh, that feel important. And similar to Henrietta, I don't have a personal platform, um, which is probably for the best, but um, I think using what I happen to do as a job, which is documentary filmmaking, to make sure that not only are we telling stories, but we are listening to the people that we're telling the stories about um, and approaching it from an angle of, let me listen to what you're going to tell me, as opposed to, I have a narrative in my head, let's go. And then well, reality uh, TV no better really place. Sued that kind of production hasn't it yeah exactly so um yeah I could not be more grateful to have done this project especially at the beginning my 
career um but yeah I'm just I'm very very thankful for everyone involved it's wonderful and it's amazing you know throughout this conversation how many fist ups fists up there have been how many claps how many little dance parties from our seats you know you guys are all cheering each other on and it's so wonderful to see, and it's so, so nourishing as a fellow female with chronic illness to see this. And I really want everyone tuning into this episode to know that, like, this is what community looks like. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing when you find the right ones. So I, I'd like to close out my interviews with a couple of top three lists, and perhaps you each have a top tip that you can offer in, in these lists. Um, first, I want to ask, top three tips for someone who's living with chronic illness, be it invisible or otherwise. Uh, Maybe they're undiagnosed, maybe they have a diagnosis. What would each of your top tips be for people who are in this spoony world with us? I'll go first. Um, I guess the first one is to know, which I wish I knew at the beginning of my journey, was to know that there's a community out there. Like we've said repeatedly, no one is ever going to really know what you're going through. And frankly, what you're going through is going to keep changing day by day, year by year, minute by minute. Um, but to, to kind of quote Henrietta, I think a big part of that is um, understanding that there are other people out there and so to connect with them. I wish I knew about the Spoonie hashtag when I first got sick. Um, and I think that's one thing that is a real positive of where we're at right now is that if you have an illness, you are able to engage with people, especially, you know, whether it's something like diabetes, which in theory is more commonly understood, spoiler, it's often not, um, or something that's really, really rare. And there's no way statistically that someone in your neighborhood would have it that you can meet. Um, I think it's just know that your community and reach out to them. Um, and also if you don't want to reach out to them, like I realized through this process, I'm so, I mean, it's called trust me, I'm sick. There's such a element of this, which is saying that you're only valid if you talk about your experiences. Um, and I think there's also room for people that want to listen and absorb and they don't feel like they need to share it themselves. And I think that that's okay too. My second one, um, is to steal from the title of our series to trust yourself. Um, I found that the more that I trust myself in general, not always, the more it encourages other people around me to trust me too. Um, there's a really beautiful scene in one of our, I say so myself, in our, uh, series where Ezra is one of our subjects um who was 18 at the time we filmed with them their mom sat down with them to kind of discuss what their experiences had been like as a kind of uh parent and child going through Ezra's experiences with EDS or Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and um their mother shared this beautiful moment where she realized that essentially and there's a kind of a story behind it but she could never be in Ezra's body so all that she could do was just trust Ezra and trust their experiences um so i think just that ability to realize that you are the only one that knows your body and the more in tune with that and the more comfortable you are in kind of acknowledging that i think the more that you can help other people support you um and a third one i'm going to directly quote and steal from henrietta because she's here <laughs> um and it's honestly my favorite quote i think of the entire series that made it into the films which is uh, right at the end of the series. So if you watch them the whole way through, you'll see it. Um, which and it only is... takes about half an hour to watch them all through. So yeah, we FYI made it guys, super... it's a quick watch. Good. Yeah. That was honestly part of it. We knew that this is a really, really heavy subject matter. And if we could kind of give you it in these little chunks, it might be easier to digest. Um, but Henrietta says something so beautiful, which made me cry at the time since always, which was just take it minute by minute. 
like I think we have that terminology of taking something day by day, but truly, especially because with illness, almost irrespective of what illness you have or illnesses, um, it is constantly changing. You can wake up and even if your pain level is the same, you can feel furious with it or you can feel fine with it. And like, I think learning to not accept that as the norm necessarily, unless that speaks to you, but I think just understanding that you, it's okay just to literally deal with the next hour. It's okay to deal with how you get through this day and how you go to bed at night um, and not putting pressure on yourself to constantly be thinking about it in a really big global, what's my life going to look like? I think there's a lot of uh, safety and sanity that can be found in really just taking it moment by moment. And in my own health journey, I have referenced Henrietta's line in my brain. So thanks, Henrietta. And sorry for stealing your quote. She's become your conscience. <laughs> what about the rest of you, Erica, Henrietta? Do you have anything to add to these top tips? That was beautifully said, Sarah. I agree with all of those. <clears throat> but I also, I'm also going to quote Henrietta. I love um, this. The like the the constant support and and reaffirmation within this circle yeah. is gorgeous. Well, yeah, I also the benefit think- of making a series about chronic illness is you get some real great tidbits and tricks. So yes, we will happily steal from our subjects for the end of time. Also, I think that both me and Sarah at this point could recite not only the entire like published series, but people's full interviews because we've watched the footage and listened to it so many times. Um, but Henrietta, in a point that wasn't that didn't make it to the series, talked about forgiving yourself. And um, Sarah touched on that a little bit at the end. But I think like this sucks. So, the, for me, I do feel like chronic illness is so much a part of me. Lupus is so much a part of me that like, I can't separate it from, um, like it has given me a lot of beautiful things and it's made me the person that I am. So I'm grateful for it in a weird way, but I a hundred percent understand people who don't feel that way, um, about their illness because yeah, like it, it sucks. Um, and so if you have days where you are just full on so depressed and hate this and are so mad and heartbroken that it has affected your life in so many ways. Like that is fine. And you have to let yourself feel that. Or I don't think you can push through for other things or, um, find acceptance or find moments of peace. If you don't let yourself have those moments of anger and, upset and all of that because so much of this is unfair and so much of it is just totally heartbreaking. Um, so yeah, forgiving yourself and letting yourself feel whatever you feel or those moments where you feel like you wish it was more visible, like that is real and that is valid and that's okay. Um, and yeah, I think, and Ezra says, I think at the end of the first film that, like embracing those beautiful, horrible, heartbreaking, tragic, great, like all of the moments, embracing that. And that is okay. And that is good. Beautifully said. Henrietta, do you have anything to add? Well, they said it so beautifully. <laughs> well, but- you're all saying things so beautifully. <laughs> Circle of love. Um, I think what I would add is something that's really changed my life. And there's been some, there's been some pretty dark days, I would say over the last few years, I, you know, as, as we've, as I've articulated today, you know, 
kidney transplants, addiction. But I think the thing that really brought me to my knees was needing to live with chronic pain, which was different from renal failure, um, in sobriety. So I didn't have the option of having a glass of wine at night, looking into medical marijuana as an alternative pill, nothing. I really had to find a spiritual solution. And and I was able to find that. I've mentioned, you know, prayer, I've mentioned meditation, but I think there's something very powerful about gratitude and cultivating a practice of gratitude. And there and, are scientific studies that would agree with you. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And gratitude is a very hard thing to find when you are overwhelmed with physical pain and um, financial strain and, and feeling isolated and all of those things. But I really believe it as a, as a practice that you cultivate. If you do something as simple as, and I do this with many women now, some of them are my sponsees, my sponsors, my friends, my sister-in-law. We do a train at night um, through our emails and we find three things that we're grateful for and three things that we did well. And what it does is it really forces you to look at your day. And even if you are completely overwhelmed with pain, and there have been days where I've been like that, I can still find gratitude for, you know, Walter White, the Basset Hound, for a comfortable bed that I can lie in and rest in when I'm sick. You know, for the it, the only drawback to moving back to Canada in the very long winters, which we're still experiencing, um, but to have that, you know, that breath of that, that, that wisp of air on my face, if I crack open the window, like really just get down to the basics and, and repeatedly do that night after night as a way to remind yourself that there's always, 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 there's always something to be grateful for. You know, a doctor that listens to you, a friend like Erica was saying that texts you and say, how are you doing? You must be, you must be really concerned about your health at this time. There it's, you simply can't, um, you can't stay in a completely negative state if you cultivate that gratitude. So that's the thing that I would encourage people to do, but make it a tangible practice, not just go, oh, I'm grateful for this bowl of ice cream or whatever it is. You, know? and you can get friends involved, as you say, who have chronic illness or who don't. There are, it's good for everyone. Yeah. And you, you create, you, cre- you can create your own little community that, and there's something about accountability too, that can be empowering when you feel so um, helpless at times in your own illness. So yeah, I would definitely, uh, it's, yeah. it's, I look forward to it at night. It's changed things for me on those dark, dark days. It really, it, it saved me to be truthful. Beautiful. All right. Final top list, top things that give you guys unbridled joy that despite lifestyle changes you may have had to make, working around treatments, et cetera, three things that you're just unwilling to give up because they make you so happy. So this could be guilty pleasures. It could be a secret indulgence, a comfort activity, just anything that makes you wildly happy. Well, I'll just, since I'm already unmuted, <laughs> I'll just dive in. I discovered this when, honestly, when I, when I got out of rehab and it was only a few months after my kidney transplant and I was on an incredible amount of medication at the time and I had a lot of side effects and I discovered three things that for me were what I call my deal breakers and they're still my deal breakers today. And if I can do these three things, I feel better. 
Uh, one is, and I know it can be challenging when you're, you know, in a physically compromised state, but one is somehow getting endorphins um, from exercise. And right now we can't do very much, but every day, um, unless you have like a full on gym in your basement and congratulations if you do, but I go for a walk every single day. I just, I power walk. I listen to ABBA. I just, it's. Oh, you're my kind of woman. (laughs) Sorry. It's best. There, there is nothing to apologize for. ABBA is like the best pump you up music ever. Still fresh, still fabulous. Yeah, it's um, there's something about, especially given the conditions we're in now, just getting outside and taking it all in, and 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 just endorphins bar none, 100% change things for me, even if it's just the tiniest little bit. The other one for me was uh, was writing, and when I first got out of rehab, I would write a blog every single day, which ended up becoming a book, which ended you know becoming what it is today. But there, I completely believe in the nourishing power of art, the healing power of art. Whatever it is, if you want to take up painting, drawing, puppetry, music, you know, trumpet from when you were in high school, like whatever it is, um, there's a part of our body that responds to that and is healed by that. And, and I think you escape into that. And that is also healing. Um, and then the other thing for me is what is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was getting to a meeting and, and essentially one alcoholic talking to another, but that's the, um, the principle of community is somehow connecting to somebody else that, that understands the way you think, that understands the way you feel, that understands what you're going through. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I I also kind of separate my two transplants. When I had my first transplant, you know, I was a 14 year old girl in Toronto that had to go to the library in downtown to look up what all these medications were and what kidney disease was. There was no internet. There was none of this. And um, go hashtags because hashtag kidney transplant. I have found this incredible community. Like I've mentioned a couple of times of people and um what it does is it, it deepens my gratitude for where I'm at with my transplant because it's going beautifully. But like, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's people struggling and, um, and if I can offer support to them and they in turn are, are supporting me by reminding me how fortunate I am. So that's what I would say. Beautiful. All right, Sarah, can you give us your top three joys? I'm about to sound hideously English, um, as if that hasn't happened in the last hour and a half. Um, I think, <laughs> and also like a copycat of Henrietta because we have similar interests. Dogs. Straight up, anyone you ask, I have an issue. I adore dogs. That's um, not an issue. That's a great thing. I'm very lucky to be quarantining with a dog right now. And similar to um, Henrietta's experience, especially when I'm flaring, there is something. And even when I'm not. There he is. Henrietta's showing us Walter White. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all of you listeners who can't see a basset hound in front of you. He did just. He's very sleepy as well. It's very cute. (laughs) He's got. Okay. Okay. That was a lot. Um, Anyway, so dogs. (laughs) Um, Secondly, uh, eating great food. I finally started cooking. I made horrendous carrot cake muffins this morning, um, which just kind of sat next to me. Like, why did you do this to me? Um, but I think, uh, an English roast is making it, eating it, sharing yeah. it. It's my favorite. Um, and finally also walking, um, especially when I first got sick and cause I kind of simultaneously and in kind of in tandems that happens, went through a lot of mental health challenges throughout my teens. I remember someone once saying to me, probably one of my therapists throughout the years, 
um, that even if you, the idea of going to the gym or exerting yourself too much is just more than you can handle. Most people, I say most people with again a degree of privilege, can, um, even if it's like a tiny stretch in your apartment right now or in general, there's something about just like the satisfaction of having just gone out and stretched your legs even for five minutes. I'm lucky in that I have the amount of health that I'm able to go for a nice hour long walk, whatever it is. But I think giving yourself, as opposed to, especially if you're you know, not in the pattern of having a ton of exercise, and even if you are, frankly, um, I think there's just something so healing about getting outside, walking at your own pace. I stick on a podcast. Now I'm going to listen to ABBA and visualize Bassa Hounds. Um, but oh, that's, yeah. that's a pretty good way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's dying um, in the corner. Um, but yeah, those are my three things. I English love that. <laughs> and Erica, give us your top three joys. Um, I will agree with the food thing. Um, I have always been a foodie, I guess. I kind of hate that word, but I am. And um, thankfully, I've, you know, I've tested a bunch of different diets and all that, and diet hasn't really affected my health. So I've just really allowed myself um, to enjoy the food that I want to eat. Um, and it's just been something that is always very exciting to me. Like when I lived in New York, I was so obsessed with restaurants and trying new places. And I've done that a little bit more so here in LA, but um, just cooking and I've gotten into baking. I'm not that good at it, but at like when you are home and you know, there are sometimes times when you, um, I feel like are, when you're living with chronic illness and you can't live life quote unquote normally doing something where you can create something and see the end product is very satisfying and makes me feel very good. Um, so that has been something that's really nice. And then I guess like in general, um, and I think this is something I've learned as I've grown up is not fighting what's like considered a guilty pleasure or, you know, what's, I almost hate to ask and use that language. I know know you don't commonly understood. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for understanding that. Yes. But I think even just like, I remember when I was in seventh grade and I pretended to like Led Zeppelin, like I did not like Led Zeppelin. I am not like, I only listened to musicals, but I like wanted to be cool. (laughs) So, you know, I think just accepting like my interests are those of a 13 year old and that's what it is. And like, and got a Harry Potter banner. Oh yes. I have a Harry Potter um, banner behind me because I, um, convinced my my girlfriend when we started dating had never read the books. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan and I finally got her to read the books and now she's like a bigger fan than me. I have. Oh, I get it. I just read them this year, this past year for the first time. Oh, welcome. And I'm obsessed. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah. And to those who haven't, start reading them now. No, but it's something like, whatever. No, I'm not going to preface it by saying like, it seems lame, but like Harry Potter is something that's really helped me rereading those books. I listen to a podcast called muggle cast every week. I love it. I look forward to it every time and it makes me really happy. And 
finding like my weird nerd out things. Like I'm a really big Disney world fan. So I watch YouTube videos <laughs> of people's trips to Disney world. Well, have I you fast- heard that during COVID you can go on, I think the Disney website and they've been do virtual the camera things of you being on the ride. Yeah. I am I'm imagining a lot of parents with their kids in long yeah. distance giving them yeah. you're like pretending you're on a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, but like, things like that. Um, and listening to podcasts, like I listened to like three podcasts about the bachelor. It is what it is. And I am in bachelor nation. Unfortunately, (laughs) Um, you're not the only one of the people who's been on the podcast. Who's like that. Yeah. So just really leaning into those things. And especially like as someone in the entertainment industry, like I watch a lot of TV, I like theater is my is, was my first love. It is one of the things that makes me the most happy in the world. I really hope that one day I will be physically well enough to do it. Um, that is my biggest goal of goals because like, if I am, I could cry just talking about it, but like, that is something that just makes me so happy. And those are things like pushing myself to go see like live things. Like there's been a few concerts, like my favorite music is Taylor Swift and One Direction RIP. So now it's Harry Styles. And there were a few concerts where I was really not feeling well. Um, but I knew, but, and my girlfriend was like, you need to go. These are your people. You must go to the concert. Like we had evaluated that I wasn't going to hurt myself by going to the concert, but it was going to give me joy. Um, and pushing through to the the joy outweighed Mm -hmm. physical issues. Yeah. And that's something I've learned this year is just kind of figuring out like when it's not unsafe um, or dangerous for you to push yourself a little bit. And like, if that is going to give you so much joy, then it's worth it. Um, And trying to figure that out. Beautiful. Well, Erica, while I've got you, can you tell everyone where to find Suffering the Silence? Mm-hmm. So you can find our website at sufferingthesilence.org, um, on Instagram at sufferingthesilence, on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash sufferingthesilence, and our Twitter is STS together. Beautiful. Thank you. Henrietta, can you tell everyone where to find you and your writing? Yes, absolutely. My memoir is called In Pillness and in Health. It's a play on the marriage Best vow. title. Best title. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it. It was my cousin and I have to give her credit. Every- You're very kind. Oh, yeah, no. Um, and it is available on Amazon and, uh, and yeah, and, and I'm very open on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Henny Bird. And you can, my very unusual name, you can find me on Facebook and I have an author page there too. Wonderful. And Sarah, can you find us finally to find what's brought us all here together today? Trust me, I'm sick. Sure. So we have, um, our website is www.trustmeimsick.com. We, Erica, please correct me if I get any of these wrong. We are um, on Instagram at um, trust me, I'm sick. Is that just it? Um, We're on Facebook. um, And also all of the films are available on Suffering the Silences IGTV. Like we said, they are five minutes each, very easy to watch. Um, and the side of them, you can get watch them there on the Edge TV. You can watch them on uh, Suffering the Silences Facebook, and you can watch them on YouTube. Um, which, if you just type in "Trust Me, I'm Sick" on YouTube, that's where you'll find them. And they're all linked on the website as well. Ladies, Erica, Henrietta, Sarah, it has been such an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to all three of you today. What 
an amazingly eye-opening, illuminating conversation. And I, I'm so excited that our listeners are going to get to hear from you all as the people behind the camera and in front of it. And I encourage everyone tuning in to watch Trust Me, I'm Sick, to get involved with Suffering the Silence, to read in Pillness and in Health. There's so much rich content out there for you. And if not for you, it's probably for your loved ones too. So ladies, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.